Welcome to the Strength Athlete Podcast, a show where we bring to light all the small and surprising details of powerlifting, a sport that seems to both be incredibly simple and complex at the same time. By finding these details alongside researchers, influential people at the top of their fields, experts and other coaches, we aim to knit a more complete picture of the sport we call home. Join us as we discover the intersections between powerlifting and identity, sleep, stress, human experience, nutrition, training programming, and more so that you can be a better athlete today. Well, it's uh, been a while since we've had a podcast. I hope you guys are all enjoying uh, your holiday right now around the world. And thank you so much for joining us. Around this time of year, we are spending some extra time with athletes talking about what they want to achieve for the year ahead with uh, decisions to make around federations with the new Powerlifting America Federation here in the United States. Uh, changes to weight classes, potentially schedule, upcoming competitions, the pro series, and so on, not to mention reaffirming their strength goals. Uh, it's a good time to be talking with athletes. Today, I'm joined by Oliver Catlin. Oliver is the president of BSCG, the Banned Substances Control Group, one of the largest certification and testing companies in the world for supplements, ingredient suppliers, manufacturing facilities, teams, leagues, and athletes who want to verify that something is or isn't present in a product. In addition, Oliver pens a blog, The Catlin Perspective, that covers the ongoing saga of doping, compounds of abuse, and the intersection between politics, sport, and the organizations that govern sport and anti-doping. On this episode, we discuss detection methods and their future, false positives, marijuana, the WADA code, 6-OXO and the pro-hormone saga of the mid-2000s, ethics, and the future of doping detection, among many more topics. Without further ado, let's introduce Oliver Catlin. Southern California there. Uh, Oliver Catlin, it's it's great to meet you. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to be doing what you're doing? Sure, Bryce. Thanks for having me. First of all, appreciate the opportunity. Fun to be with you. Um, yeah, I, I essentially grew up in, in anti-doping myself. Uh, I had the luxury of growing up uh, the son of Dr. Don Catlin, who uh, my father helped essentially build the sport drug testing system in the United States uh, starting in 1982. So uh, he built a lab at UCLA there to do uh, Olympic quality testing. Uh, they built it for the 1984 Olympic Games, and that was the first competition that that uh, he worked for. But it went on to become the largest anti-doping laboratory in the world uh, and do testing for the NCAA, the NFL, uh, minor league baseball, the U.S. military, and, of course, the, the Olympics, uh, the U.S. Olympic uh, movement as well. So uh, I got to cut my teeth there for three years as the director of finance and administration, which was great for me, uh, got to really understand what it meant to be inside of a laboratory and uh, helping to actually perform the, the drug testing for athletes. So got to know a lot about how that process works. And of course, you know, I experienced a number of positive drug tests from the standpoint of the laboratory and the administrator um, during that time and, and had a number of experiences with 
supplements and supplement positives and so forth. So, you know, it was really it was really that that pushed the creation of BSCG, Banned Substances Control Group, which is the company that I run today that specializes in third party certification and testing for dietary supplements. We really wanted to put out a proactive way for athletes to protect themselves from supplement contamination and testing positive from innocent sources. So that's what BSCG is all about. And I've been doing that now for 17 years. Very cool. Um, so it sounds like it's been a little bit in the family with uh, your father doing this first and then you kind of continuing onwards. Um, is that something you just kind of fell into because you were passionate or was there some kind of directive there? No, it's just something that I sort of fell into. It's uh, I approach it more from a standpoint of business. My father was a medical doctor um, and got to approach it from that standpoint. But it's I'm really trying to look at it as a business and sort of look at what we do and and the services that we offer and grow and build those. So it's somewhat of a different perspective, but but still applying the same trade in the end. And of course, you know, being where we are now, we we find ourselves kind of in the middle, if you will, where we're we are, you know, we sit on a foundation of anti-doping and clean sport. That's, you know, that's why we do what we do. Uh, but now we're also working for the dietary supplement industry and working with, you know, 85 plus uh, reputable brands and are trying to, you know, use our seal and the quality that uh, that infuses on the overall product itself. Yeah. Uh, we're trying to sort of showcase that to the world and become a resource for athletes uh, to really use to protect themselves from these types of issues. It's amazing to me, you know, the surveys these days are showing that 80% of Americans are using dietary supplements now. And, you know, the surveys of athletes are largely the same. The ones I've seen have showed 30 to 80% or more of dietary supplement use. So it's, we know athletes are seeking out these dietary supplements for, you know, to top off their nutrition, to get a little bit of an extra edge and competition or, you know, simply to provide the protein and nutrients that they're looking for that are sometimes difficult to get when you're a traveling athlete. So, um, you know, that's what we're all about today is is working in that vein and, and trying to protect the athletes and the downstream consumer. But in that role, it's uh, it's a fun role. We we're constantly being asked to review new dietary supplements, new ingredients, and so you know we essentially have to figure out what is or is not acceptable for an athlete to use as we're going about our process. So that's a, a very interesting process. It's also a very complicated process at times, since since uh, there's there's some gray areas within that that definitely need to be dealt with. So yeah. I, I do want to get into that. Um, absolutely. I just got finished with uh, you know this trip across. Um, we went to Italy, France, and Switzerland, and there's a little bit of a difference in like access to supplements, access to um, even over-the-counter medications. And it was a little bit surprising to me coming from the United States, where you can go to you know any supermarket and find something that over there a lot of times you need a prescription for, or you need to ask a pharmacist for. And uh, what you said about kind of supplements being used here a lot, you know, just for everything, it just kind of speaks to the, the attitudes of Americans versus at least the countries that, that I was at. Um, is that kind of yeah, a right, pervasive? Yes. 
Well, there's very different different attitudes, I think, around the world when it comes to dietary supplements and so forth. It's I think some cultures are more food focused initially and secondarily focused on these things. But but here in the States, you know, there's so many functional dietary supplements, whether it's helping with your nails or your hair or your skin or, you know, body functions. Uh, there's, you know, things that support hormones as you get older and so forth. It's and it's you know, there's a natural attractant, I think, to that uh, in our human realm as we, you know, age and so forth. We're always trying to sort of keep ourselves in the the best shape possible and, and keep that sort of youth alive, if you will. So yeah. not that that isn't the case in other countries. But I mean, you know, we forget sometimes that in some countries of the world, you can still buy steroids in the pharmacy. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very true. And so, you know, the attitudes, I think, around the world and the awareness of the risks of taking diet or taking banned substances in general uh, are certainly different. And that that also shows itself in the realm of dietary supplements. So can you tell me a little about the lab and how banned substances are detected in the first place and how BSCG goes about that? Sure. Uh, it's a similar process we follow as to athlete testing. Athlete testing is is predominantly done in urine. Uh, these days, blood testing is picking up as well. And there's a new blood spot collection method that they've introduced recently, which should be interesting to follow as that, that methodology continues to grow. Um, but we use the same instrumentation ourselves to do the drug testing of the dietary supplements. And these days, it's uh, usually liquid chromatography mass spectrometry spectrometry that's used. Uh, sometimes that's supported by gas chromatography, mass spectrometry uh, for various reasons. But, you know, it's it's fascinating. I mean, the, the industry of sport drug testing has progressed significantly in its ability to detect drugs in the last decade. And it's really primarily been driven by a increase in the sensitivity mm. of the instruments that we use. You know, a decade ago, we may only have been able to find as low as two nanograms per gram, which is two parts per billion. Uh, these days, we're regularly finding 10 parts per trillion or even below that. Some cases, we can detect a half a part per trillion. So, I mean, those, I mean, a part per trillion you, is, you can't even really imagine what a part per trillion is. Uh, I think a grain of salt is 59 parts per million. So wow. you're talking about slicing that up, you know, another thousand times to get yeah. to the sensitivity, you know, that we have these days in sport drug testing. So um, it's it's increased the risks that athletes face to test positive from contaminated supplements, I would say, since the amount an athlete has to ingest of a banned substance today uh, in order to test positive is much less than it was a decade ago. Um, and it, it also, you know, frankly, I have concerns as sensitivities continue to increase that we might start to find um, in, even environmental contamination, field contamination. Mm -hmm. um, there's a banned substance 
difference in sport that also happens to be uh, grass food additive. Okay, so mm. it's commonly added to foods in relatively small amounts. But um, there's biomagnification to think about. Yeah. So if you know a thousand people eat the same food and it all contains this banned substance in sport, um, that can biomagnify in the water system. And there was actually a study done on irrigated plants with this particular banned substance in sport. It's a phenethylamine. Um, but there was a study done that demonstrated that significant amounts of this compound were still present in carrots and even vegetables that were grown in a field that was irrigated with treated wastewater from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm not talking about, you know, the middle of nowhere. So, you know, this was an EPA university funded study that demonstrated that this contaminant was present in food. And yeah. so, you know, now is really the time where I think anti-doping authorities have to be particularly aware of that reality. And thankfully, there are some of them out there that are and, and that are worried about, you know, that sensitivity increase in a how low is too low to apply to sport drug testing and and does it open up some of these additional risks that we may not actually want and may not be beneficial to the athletes at the end of the day. So in your mind, uh, would a potential solution just be to kind of figure out what a cutoff is that above that amount you can be reasonably certain this person was actively trying to take a substance and below that it's just uh, either trace amounts or some of these environmental contaminants like you were talking about? I mean, uh, it starts with awareness that these things can biomagnify and be present in the food supply. So that's the first thing that we need to be aware of. And then, yes, based on the circumstances or components or compound that we're talking about, trying to figure out an acceptable level would certainly be good. But there are flaws with creating an acceptable level. Um, and I think, you know, there are examples of that even in the Nandrolone test that's applied today. Um, you know, there was an athlete, Shelby Houlihan, a track athlete who tested positive for Nandrolone uh, just before the Olympics and the Olympic trials, I think. And um, she kept a food, food log and so forth. She was very careful about her nutrition in general. And she believes that the Nandrolone finding came from meat that she ate at a food truck in Oregon. Mm. So this was evaluated in the course of her case. And there's actually a study done in 2020 uh, by the World Anti-Doping Agency community that demonstrates the possibility and the likelihood that you can test positive for nandrolone after eating random meat. This study was picked 12 different sources of meat in and around Europe, fed it to 12 different people and did the testing for nandrolone afterwards. And two out of the 12 failed a drug test, okay? Not one, two. So, you know, 15% of the people eating this meat tested positive. And yet, in her case, uh, the Court of Arbitration for Sport suggested that it was improbable that she would have tested positive for meat. And it's... 
you know, it's difficult. Once you test positive, you, an athlete, have to prove your own innocence, okay? And I was reading an article this morning. You know, there have been 30 different situations in U.S. anti-doping agency testing since 2016 where athletes have been able to prove that they took something uh, that they didn't know was contaminated, a meat or food or something, and tested positive as a result. But I wonder how many athletes during that period of time were not able to prove that it was an innocent source. Mm -hmm. Um, And are we doing harm to uh, a portion of the athlete population as a result? That frightens me, and it should be a concern for anybody who, you know, really appreciates and loves clean sport. You know, we, some people think that, you know, anti-doping, folks are are just sort of out there to set up a system and police sport but I mean we do it at the end of the day for the athletes the athletes that want to compete in a clean environment and so the system has to work for those athletes and it has to protect innocent athletes as well uh, you know I asked my father once you know if we if we had a test and we knew that 99% of the time, you know, it was finding a doper, but 1% of the time it was calling out an innocent athlete. Should we continue to use the test? And his answer was no. Um, I worry that's not the answer across the industry. And it's, you know, getting back to the issue that we were discussing, you know, when you set up levels and thresholds, um, you know, it's hard to establish those levels and thresholds completely accurately. You're always limited by a certain number of study, uh, you know, subjects, you know, whether it's 25, whether it's 100, you know, if you get into a thousand, you start to talk about a more representative population, but not very many of these administration studies that you are used to set up these thresholds go into the thousands of athletes. So there's, there's different metabolisms to consider and it's, it's hard for those studies to capture a perfect you know, picture of reality and, and lay out those, those thresholds and levels, uh, you know, where they should be. So definitely uh, thoughts on false positives made me think a little bit about, uh, like false DNA tests and false incarcerations from, Uh you know, murderers and and things like that, that have kind of these lasting consequences. And, uh, at least in, in powerlifting, this is the sport that, uh, you know, I'm an athlete in, I'm a coach in, I, I help officiate in various competitions and stuff. So, um, involved in the sport at quite a few levels and the attitudes when someone tests positive are kind of immediate, swift, um, mm-hmm. and, and I worry about the reputation of athletes too, because it's really hard to repair that after something like this happens. I mean, it's next to impossible to repair that after something like this happens is the real reality. And it's, it's you know, I think of Maria Sharapova's situation, you know, it's, it's tennis, but, you know, she was called out for using a therapeutic drug that she was prescribed. Um, and, you know, she became sort of the poster child for doping when I really don't think that's who she was as an individual. 
people uh, in general. And, you know, it's amazing. There's we can talk more about meldonium later because I really think it's a fascinating substance. There was that substance once it became prohibited in sport, very quickly became the most reported or second most reported drug in the, the WADA system. And to me, what that shows is that athletes are looking for these Eastern European drugs that are not yet listed as banned substances and are not yet detected uh, in the system. So we, we can talk more about that. But yeah, well, actually, know, I, I read that article um, on your blog, The Callan Perspective, by the way, a lot of uh, amazing thoughts about the intersection between you know, the science of anti-doping, but also the ethics of anti-doping as well, which is kind of a big passion of mine. You know, how do we define fairness and stuff like that? And that first article on Meldonium and kind of um, the legacy of, of Russian science is, is just fascinating. So, you know, if, if you're interested in it, please let me know. Yeah, no, I mean, we can we can chat more about that if you're interested, but it's it's, uh, you know, we really do what we do to protect the reputation of athletes. We know they're using dietary supplements. And the last thing we want is for an athlete to have to undergo the the treatment they are. You know, their sport essentially turns their back on an athlete that dopes. And, you know, it's it's you're vilified. Um, um, in the sport, regardless whether it's innocent or not, uh, sometimes sometimes people don't even believe that, uh, and it's you know you also don't really think about the money that's involved in defending a case like that. Um, it takes enormous resources to fight against a doping positive. You're hiring an attorney who's going to charge you twenty to thirty grand right off the bat. You know, not to mention that you don't really have a chance in a case like that if you can't prove that there was an alternate source. So now you're talking about testing whatever it is that you were taking to try to prove that that you're innocent. And even if you do that, you may not get a, any sanction relief. You know, I do a lot of work yeah. uh, as an expert witness in NCAA cases, okay? And a lot of times NCAA athletes don't have very many resources to defend themselves. And it's, mm. you know, if an athlete doesn't have resources to defend themselves, they can be innocent, but they're never going to be proven that. Um, so, you know, it's been interesting trying to, to work in that realm um, and talk to athletes that have tested positive and really understand what that does to their their mental psyche, to their, their person, to their being. Um, I have one of my NCAA athletes who tested positive for, you know, 10 picograms, parts per trillion of, of of a, of a banned substance that, mind you, in the UFC uh, now has thresholds at, a, at 100 picograms. Uh, so if you're below that level, you're not positive. So this kid wouldn't have been positive in that system, oh. and he knew it. Yeah. And he still texts me today regularly, you know, asking if anything's been done in the system to adjust the thresholds to try to, you know, fix this problem because he's adamant that he did didn't test positive, he wants to know the reason why, and he doesn't want other kids to be harmed the same way he was. So, you know, that's really why we do what we do and, and <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah. There's a, a quote from that article you were saying is like, 
When we ran independent drug testing programs for several leading cycling teams in the Peloton years ago, a key member of the team said to me, you know, Oliver, we aren't doing anything that's over the line, but we're definitely doing everything we can up to the line. And uh, I think that attitude of pushing the limits makes it so that, you know, any kind of arbitrary, you know, amount of a substance that you decide, someone's going to try to get right up to the line uh, underneath it, for instance. Right. I mean, you know, oftentimes that's the game athletes try to play when they dope. Yeah, they're using things that are on the banned substance list and they try to look to the research to figure out withdrawal times and so forth. I can use it for 35 days, two months. I got to cut it out two months before competition uh, and so forth and so on. That's a dangerous game to play for the reason I said earlier, because these administration studies that are, you know, the study that people would look to for for the science to inform their sort of doping decisions, they do not capture reality. So, you know, take oral terinobol, for example, okay? This oral terinobol is the drug that was used by Germans to as, as part of the state-sponsored doping, you know, long ago. It's yeah. still out there and it's still in use today. Uh, and it's one of the drugs where we've significantly lowered the detection threshold recently. So we can find this drug down to 10 parts per trillion, one of the drugs. So um, it's now out there. The published literature on this drug says it's detectable for a period of 45 days. The actual reality is this drug may be detectable for more than a year. Wow. Okay. And so, you know, there are athletes competing today who have tested positive for this substance, test negative in several subsequent tests and then test positive again. There was a major league baseball player who did that and he had a sanction for the first finding and he had a sanction for the second finding. Okay. Much deeper sanction for the second finding. And his argument was, no, I tested positive originally. This is the same stuff showing up in my system again. And they didn't listen to his argument. Okay. Whereas in the UFC, when that same scenario happened with John Jones, they did listen to his argument, okay? And he didn't suffer a second sanction. So it's, you know, one of the fascinating things that I look at as, as I, you know, do my work are the differences in rules that apply across different sports, okay? And across different groups. You know, how does the NCAA compare to the UFC compared to, you know, Major League Baseball and so forth? And it's, it's, you know, the NCAA system, it, even though they're dealing with the most at-risk population of athletes, is by far the harshest system when it comes to adjudicating findings. For example, if you are an NCAA athlete and you test positive, okay, and you go ahead and you test the supplements that you use, and you find one of those that made you test positive, and there was nothing banned on the label, Okay, so you had no idea whether there was something banned there. Well, guess what? That's not going to be considered as a reason to give you any sanction relief in the NCAA. Whereas in almost 
any other sporting environment, it would be a cause for sanction relief. So NCAA athletes have to be more cautious than any other athlete on the, in the population of the world when it comes to dealing with dietary supplements. And sadly, you know, they, they are, are not often educated as to the real depths of those risks. So, um, you know, Olympic athletes, uh, if you, you test positive as an Olympic athlete and you have your supplements tested uh, and you prove that one of them was the source of it, more than likely you will get some kind of sanction relief. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get the whole sanction reduced, but you'll probably get it cut in half or something to that degree. So, um, you know, that's just an example. There are some environments of sport where if you prove it was a supplement that made you test positive, you probably won't get any sanction at all. So the difference is just between how you deal with a, a positive that comes from a dietary supplement are amazing. And and the differences are, are you know, go on from there. Yeah. I think we can get into a conversation a little bit about blame, you know, about like when someone tests positive, like what or who is to blame, you know, is it a supplement manufacturer who, you know, doesn't use a clean uh, manufacturing environment or, you know, happens to manufacture steroids, but also, you know, supplements that are supposed to be totally legal and there happens to be some intermixing is the athlete who has ill intentions. Uh, And then of course we talked about false positives and, and, you know, kind of the influence of drug testing itself. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think what we're looking for, always is cases where someone malevolently tries to gain an advantage, right? Right. Sure. I mean, that's what we're, we're obviously trying to find those that are purposely trying to get performance enhancement and game the system. Um, but you know, that's, it's, it's, it's challenging on occasion. It's, uh, it's really not an easy task. Yeah. How does um how does a new supplement or a new compound I guess get added to the WADA band code? I know it's revised every year, but what is that process like? Do you know anything about that? Um, sure. I mean, there's the World Anti-Doping Agency has a list committee, and it's the list committee's job to review uh, compounds and consider whether they should be put onto uh, the banned list. I think they meet a couple times a year, and they make their decisions uh, towards the end of the year. Then they uh, recommend uh, certain substances to be considered for addition, sometimes subtraction from the list, um, and then that would be approved by the WADA executive committee. So the listing conditions are fascinating, though. There's three of them. The first is whether something has a proven ability or could perhaps enhance performance, doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily have to be proven. The second condition is harm, proven or potential to cause harm. And the third condition is an extremely fuzzy one, which is uh, whether something is against the spirit of sport. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Very fuzzy to me. So let's be clear. Uh, Something could be added to the WADA prohibited list because it has the potential to cause harm and because it's against the spirit of sport alone. That means it doesn't necessarily have to enhance performance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Which is kind of odd. Um, And this third condition is just, uh, I challenge anybody 
to sort of define what it means to be against the spirit of sport. It's gaining an advantage through, you know, some outside source, whether it be technology or whether it be a drug. Um, if that's the case, we got an awful lot of work to do, uh, given the blog that I wrote about Russian doping agents. Yeah. Um, you know, in that blog that I wrote, I went back to published literature. OK, I, I, I don't like, you know, sort of sitting in the chair of a doper very often. And so I sort of shy away from trying to create a roadmap for dopers to follow. I'd be sure. pretty good at it if I wanted to be. But, um, you know, there in this case, there are published studies in, you know, Internet information that's right there at your fingertips. And what I did was characterize essentially nine compounds that are of Eastern European origin, um, some of which, I mean, there was a, a paper that I quoted in the blog that said that that for one of these substances, sitnocarb, that they knew that the Latvian and Russian Olympic teams were using this substance to, quote, prepare for the Olympic Games. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, prepare for the Olympic Games means to probably top off your performance. And so if it's not harmful, it certainly seems that they're trying to gain a performance advantage. And that would certainly seem to be against the spirit of sport. So uh, and that's something that there was a research paper written about that said these people are using this drug to dope and it's not on the WADA prohibited list. OK, the most fascinating thing to me is historically looking back at doping in the Olympics. OK, the reason we started doing drug testing in the Olympic Games was because stimulants uh, were, had become a major problem. OK, and there was a stimulant that actually was involved in the death of an Olympic athlete, okay? Um, and the stimulant is called Ronicol, okay? So this Ronicol was involved in the death of an Olympic athlete, stimulant, and that's what caused the Olympic movement to start testing for stimulants. And as we sit here today, Bryce, Ronicol is not on the prohibited list. Really? And yet wow. you can buy it on the internet, you know? <laughs> it's thankfully not one of the more prevalent, you know, drugs that are peddled out there on the Internet. But for you to be able to buy the first stimulant that caused an Olympic athlete to test positive and 40 some odd years later, that stimulant is not on the prohibited list. Something's missing uh, yeah. to me. Uh, and I don't exactly know what it is, but I can tell you there's three hundred. 133 drugs or so named by name on the WADA prohibited list. Okay. There's about 1,300 drugs on the uh, Federation of Equine Internationals list of equine prohibited drugs. Okay. So there's a thousand extra drugs at least that are not covered in human sport. And at least a few of those are probably effective as a human doping agent. Yeah. So 
that's just an example of of the sort of situation and it's as i wrote in the blog there's only about four drugs on the world anti-doping agency prohibited list that are of eastern european origin it's a very western medicine centric system so if there's a drug developed in western medicine that could be a new anabolic or could be you know the next epo you can expect that that will get added to the WADA pro prohibited list. However, if it's developed in Eastern European pharma, probably don't really have a very good chance of having that substance be added to the prohibited list. And that's what these nine agents that I looked at in my my writing were, drugs of Eastern European origin that were very similar or were direct replacements or even described in, in on website pages as direct replacements for these doping agents. So we, we got to get smart um, and we got to open our eyes to what's out there in the world if we really want to be effective at anti-doping. We can't leave these gaps where, you know, there's a whole entire Eastern European pharmacopial, you know, system of drugs uh, that can be looked to for, you know, doping options. Meldonium proved that Olympic athletes around the world were looking for this. That's why Mm -hmm. it became the second most reported drug in, in a year. Year. There were 1,300 some odd positives for meldonium in, in a three-year stretch. Unbelievable. Does you or your organization do much kind of advocacy for an increase in, in regulation instead of just leaving it up to supplements or being able to get these things over the counter? What are your thoughts on, say, regulation for the supplement industry versus like pharmaceuticals, which seem you know far more sure. tightly uh, tightly watched? Well, we can talk about the differences between that in a second, but absolutely we try to be proactive and, and do things to help the regulatory environment. Just as an example of that, you know, the FDA put out a dietary supplement ingredient advisory list, you know, maybe I think maybe three or four years ago by now is when they first put it out. When it first came out, it had four ingredients on the list. Mm. Four. Okay. And now I think it has about 10 or 11. All right. So I looked at the list and, you know, we decided we'd put together our own dietary supplement ingredient advisory list that covers just over 70 ingredients. Okay. And those are just low hanging fruit, to be perfectly frank, um, that are out there that we, we know should be addressed. And so, you know, 30 of those happen to be nootropic compounds. Okay. Brain stimulants uh, and nootropic drugs and or supplements are becoming hugely popular either both among athletes and general consumers. Um, So, you know, I put 30 drugs on this ingredient advisory list that shouldn't appear in dietary supplements, but that commonly do. And amazingly enough, many of those are not on the WADA prohibited list. So, you know, in the nootropic realm, um, there are countless uh, substances you can use uh, 
that would be alternative doping agents. I don't point to those, but but that's the reality. And you know, ideally, none of none of these things are legal dietary supplement uh, ingredients according to the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994, which uh, defines what it means to be a dietary supplement in the U.S. So. The fact that we let them, as an industry, the fact that we let them proliferate and be sold simply provides illegal drugs as dietary supplements. And what do you think is going to happen to the consumers? They don't know the difference. You know, they're not doing all this research to figure out whether these are legal ingredients or not. They're assuming they are. And so I would certainly like to see a lot more proactive activity. And I ask for it uh, in the four ingredients. You know, we're part of four industry groups that represent various natural products and dietary supplements uh, communities. And at almost every meeting I'm in, I ask for us to pay more attention to these illegal agents that are sold as dietary supplements. Yeah. Why? You know, because they do harm to the industry as well. It's always these drugs uh, that draw negative attention to the dietary supplement community and make it appear as though it's unregulated. When yeah. there are really good regulations in the dietary supplement community, it's just that we don't have the resources to really effectively manage that. The The Office of Dietary Supplements under the NIH has ten, a $10 million budget, which was just increased dramatically. Hmm. But you're talking about $10 million to police, you know, a huge industry that, I mean, I don't know what it's estimated at, countless billions of dollars. Um, and it's, it's you just don't have the resources to effectively deal with that. So sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that, you know, that falls to groups like us to sort of pick up the, the mantle and to say, no, something needs to be done about these things. And at the very least, we're going to create a resource where, you know, an athlete or a supplement professional or anybody can come to our site and say, OK, I shouldn't put this in a formula or I shouldn't use a dietary supplement that has this drug in it. Um, and that's a that's a simple message to get out there. Um, but look, there's there are sometimes formulators, okay, who are making these dietary supplements who have no clue whether these ingredients are illegal or not. Yeah. And, you know, if they're at a dietary supplement manufacturing facility and they're carried, well then, okay, must be an acceptable ingredient. So I'll put it in my, you know, product. But that's not the case. You know, it's, um, you know, out there in the world, there are still some supplement manufacturers in the U.S. who are making illegal dietary supplement products, okay? There's things like SARMs out there on the market, right, that are, are packaged as dietary supplements. And those are being made uh, often next to your protein powder, okay, in a manufacturing facility that shouldn't have that substance in the facility, but it's there. Yeah. And that's what creates the possibility for containment 
contamination or it's even further upstream from that price so say you're you're you know the protein powder that you use in your formula comes from china and you know they're making this protein powder next to the you know banned substances that they regularly make as well and it can get contaminated at that source so that's that's the most common source of contamination is either raw material contamination or contamination in a manufacturing mm. facility but you know there are other sources as i alluded to earlier there's the potential to eat it in meat there's biomagnification in water um, there's a number of things for us to think about these days not not to mention livestock farming okay um you know here in the u.s we have laws against certain steroids being used uh to fatten cattle okay right um certain steroids not all steroids okay so if you think about it uh, I'm I'm a cattle farmer and I want to fatten my cattle and I know this is the list of the drugs that I can't use oh well maybe I'll go to the world anti-doping agency's list of anabolic agents and oh these SARMs look like they're pretty effective anabolic agents maybe I can fatten my cattle with a SARM yeah. they aren't testing for these SARMs in, in you know agriculture so okay right there is a, a way that, uh, you know, through malfeasance in the farming industry, you could get a, you know, contaminant to show up uh, in your meat. Same is true of fish farming. It's probably either even easier in fish farming. Okay. And the one thing I happened to note when I was looking into oral terinabol, you can find oral terinabol for sale on the internet in these giant bags. Okay. And there's these little blue pills in there. Perfect little blue pill format for feeding fish in a fish farm, Bryce. And if they certainly they are not drug testing fish. Okay. They're not drug testing salmon or anything like that. So if I'm right and that kind of activity is going on out there in the world, then, you know, it's a big world, Bryce. Um, and to think that that nobody out there in the world has thought about that same thing that I might have thought about is just, you know, it's, it's not likely that, that that has has been that the possibility to dope through those channels and improve, you know, either fish farming or cattle farming uh, is likely. Yeah. So, you know, I think we need to be aware of those types of things, too, and and maybe even consider adding, you know, some testing in the agricultural environment, you know, to to that. How, how in the world is an athlete supposed to go back and test the steak that they ate to see if it contained ostrin? You, you can't. Yeah. So do you think that the genie's out of the bottle when it comes to that and, and just kind of like it's a. Uh... I don't know. It's a pipe dream to have drug-free sport or, you know, is, is the battle still worth fighting, you know? Oh, the battle is definitely still worth fighting. And I mean, I think we all know what would come if we just open the door to, you know, performance enhancing drug use in, in sport. It wouldn't be mono a mono. It would be mono a chemist. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's not the kind of thing we want to see. An athlete should be able to train to their best of their ability to put the best nutritional, you know, protocols 
protocols in place and be able to achieve, you know, the pinnacles of sport. And it should be that, not, you know, hey, did this athlete find the next best drug that, you know, can make them chemically better than the next guy? Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> should we, do we, do we, we want to see a, a doping Olympics with these giant people that mind you? I mean, we've seen what happens when we leave the door open to doping, okay? We've seen people like Lyle Alzado in wrestling who came back and died at what, like 45, where he himself said it was likely because of his performance enhancing drug use. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, do we really want to foster an environment of sport where athletes have to take drugs and are almost certain to die early as a because of that? No, Um, I don't think that's what we want in sport. So, yes, we absolutely need to keep the battle um, going. Um, And it's, you know, there's many a difficult battle out there in the world that's still worth fighting. And this is certainly one of those, in my view. And it's it's, you know, I point to a lot of of flaws in the system, but that's because I'm passionate about clean sport. And that's because I want those things to be understood, recognized and addressed, you know. Um, So that's why I talk about it. There are some people in the anti-doping realm who would never talk about these things because it it shows there are holes in the system and they don't they don't want to admit or or, you know, or at least sort of demonstrate where those holes may be. But, you know, meldonium should have proven to the world that people are looking at different in different places for drugs to use to enhance their performance. And, you know, we really need to open our eyes and try to consider that. It's I don't know how many other substances there are out there in the world that would be effective doping agents that are not yet banned, but there are certainly some. And I'd like to see the process accelerated in considering what those may be. Uh, And I certainly want to see more attention on Eastern European uh, drugs, as there are likely many like meldonium that could be used as doping agents. So here here we're we're, we've been sitting here fighting against this, you know, gross issue of doping at the Olympic Games in Sochi with samples being passed through walls and opened by the KGB and stuff like that, right? So we think that doping needs to be that complex. And as I'm going through that whole case, you know, I'm sitting here thinking this. I'm sitting here thinking, why go to all those levels when there are these clear doping alternatives that you could use, okay? I mean, the steroids that Grigory Rodchenko, the Russian lab director, admitted to giving to Russian athletes are old school steroids they've been around for years mm-hmm. uh, it's just that they were being given in liquid forms that would be expected to pass through the system fairly quickly so they were trying to game the system that way but you don't have to there's plenty of eastern european drugs that that would just be undetectable today why does it seem that a lot of the drugs of abuse stem from eastern european countries is that is there like some kind of malevolent like action on the whole are, are they just you know, further along in chemistry, you know, what, what do you make of that? I wouldn't necessarily say that 
there are more drugs that are abused that are of Eastern European origin. I would say that that may be apparent. I mean, for, for the issue I said earlier, right, most of the drugs on the WADA prohibited list are of Western origin. So those are the ones that we're focusing on. But sure. when we light up something like a meldonium, all of a sudden it shows us that there's a whole host of use of, of drugs we haven't been considering. And so I think it's, it's hard to say. I, right now, there are probably plenty of Eastern European drugs being used that aren't being detected. But if you add those to the list, um, then you sort of go back to this sort of worldwide search for the next doping agent. Um, And it's, you know, I just I just want to put, you know, a finger in the dike, so to speak, and and plug that leak that we know is staring us in the face today. So sure. I want to switch topics just a little bit earlier this year before the uh, Olympics, the Olympic trials, um, Shikari Richardson tested positive for marijuana. And, you know, there's a fairly large upheaval of opinions, you know, from all sides about it, you know, whether or not it was ethical and and stuff like that. It it does seem like attitudes around marijuana are changing. I think in 2012, they changed the detectable limit or something like that. Um, what's the relationship between like the water code banned substances and, and just kind of like um, general attitudes of the time. I mean, it has everything to do with the general attitudes of the time. I and mean, one of the biggest reasons that marijuana was put onto the prohibited list in the first place was the war on drugs in the 90s when the drug czar was, oh, forget his name right now, McCaffrey. General McCaffrey was the drug czar. And at the time, marijuana was, was targeted. And I mean, my dad had conversations with McCaffrey at that time where McCaffrey was was urging my dad as the IOC Medical uh, Commission representative to prohibit marijuana. It it wasn't a soft request. So, um, you know, it was politics and that sort of political, um, you know, war on drugs that really got marijuana to be prohibited. And at least we recommended it and the world sort of followed. Yeah, it took a few years, though, for all sports to put it into their list. Well, remember Ross Rabagliotti, the first you know snowboarder to test positive for marijuana, eventually got his gold medal returned to him mm-hmm. because uh, marijuana and its prohibition hadn't been written into the rules of, uh, of the uh, Ski Federation at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So that's now been made consistent across Olympic <laughs> sport. But, uh, you know, certainly attitudes towards cannabis in general have changed and you know nowadays we have two two different segments of the cannabis industry you know marijuana and hemp and you know hemp has been legalized as a non-psychoactive plant uh, under the 2018 Farm Act and is exploding in popularity among athletes the compound CBD cannabidiol uh, was removed it's now an exception to the water prohibited list so people can use CBD uh, now and not test positive however um, there are of course you know a number of questions 
even in that. Um, you know, there's different types of CBD products. There's CBD isolate, which is just CBD, and there's broad spectrum CBD, which has other other uh, cannabinoids present. Well, if you look at the WADA prohibited list today, uh, only CBD was accepted. So these other minor natural cannabinoids that may be present in a broad spectrum product, some people may still think that those are considered prohibited. And according to a strict reading of the list, they are still prohibited. However, when you look at the scope and scale of drug testing, the focus of that drug testing is on THC, the psychoactive component in marijuana, and on uh, these dangerous um, cannabimimetics, which are are THC. Well, they're they're synthetic chemicals that are made to mimic the effects of usually marijuana. Uh, so we test for those as well in sport, but sport has never tested for CBD and sport has never tested for any of these other minor cannabinoids that are in broad spectrum products. Mm. So uh, today we offer our certified CBD program. We're the only ones in the world to offer a program like it that um, does banned substance testing and protection of the products. We do uh, verify the label claims to make sure the amount of CBD that's on the label is there. Uh, um, we test for heavy metals, pesticides, solvents, and micro. Uh, and at the beginning of the process, we review the quality control process to make sure uh, that the hemp is sourced properly if they're using hemp, uh, to make sure that they're properly testing raw materials and finished products that go into it. So uh, we're super excited about our program, and we know how, uh, how exciting the CBD industry is to athletes, and we also know how risky it is and so we really wanted to be one of the first to offer uh, protection in that realm against banned substances and against positive drug tests from THC. So we've been doing that now for about a year and a half and, and are excited that the program continues to grow. So there's still many a question surrounding CBD products and a lot of paranoia that's driven by some of the educational resources that are still talking about these other cannabinoids being prohibited when in practice they're really not. Yeah. I, it's so interesting to see this kind of evolve in real time, you know, to see kind of the, the list get updated, uh, new things come out, this intersection between what people are interested in, what the code says, you know, mm -hmm. um, regulations, and then, of course, um, companies like you that are kind of trying to help people navigate this to the best of their ability and come out with a substance that people would be comfortable taking. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. You also have to consider, you know, a larger perspective than just an American perspective when you're looking at, you know, the place that marijuana holds in and around sport, right? So it's been prohibited. And as you alluded to, you know, we increased the threshold in urine from 15 nanograms per milliliter to 150 nanograms per milliliter, which was geared towards reducing the amount of positive drug tests from casual contact where maybe you're in a room where somebody's smoking marijuana or, you know, something like that. So it, it was aimed towards reducing those positive drug tests. And it did. It reduced the numbers of positives from about 450 to 500 THC positives a year to now about 150. Mm. Um, and, you know, not very many people think about the legal resources 
resources behind the scenes that need to be available. That's 350 athlete cases yeah. that had to be adjudicated and that WADA had to have legal resources to address before. And that's 350 cases that now disappear. And those resources can now be put towards developing new tests or what have you. I'd rather have it be spent there than than dealing with people that are, are you know, coming up positive from marijuana. But, you know, we have to look around the world uh, while while we have legalized marijuana, at least medically in many states in the U.S., uh, there's only a handful of states right now that have approved it recreationally. And when you look at that around the world, um, there's only about 40 countries around the world today who have approved of cannabis in any form. Mm -hmm. And there's only about, I think, three or four who have uh, considered cannabis and marijuana uh, legal from a recreational standpoint. So if you only have three or four countries out of the 196 that compete in the Olympics who have made it recreationally legal, uh, I'm not sure you have a, a sort of... Uh, a what's the right word a collective mass where that that sort of suggests that we should adjust the rules any further in the world anti-doping agency realm remember yeah. also that they also just took uh, they reduced sanctions for THC positive significantly as well so you used to have a two year sanction now you have a three month sanction so um Attitudes have def definitely changed, and, and the approach to dealing with athletes has certainly changed. Um, it probably will continue to adjust in the future, but I'm not sure we're quite at the point where we should, you know, let marijuana be used freely in and around the Olympics. I, I don't think we want to get to a point where, you know, you have an Olympic athlete smoking a joint before they, you know, run the hundred meters. So yeah. Sounds pretty reasonable to me. Um, <laughs> I think it would most people. You mentioned that uh, that extra money and resources, you know, potentially being put to use for new detection methods and stuff like that. Where do you think of the the future of the research for detection methods headed? You know, you mentioned that uh, detection quantities are getting smaller, but uh, are there new detection methods, or you know, where is the research headed? There are. I mean, one of the most exciting things that's come along recently is this dried blood spot collection. Uh, so they're they're now taking just a dried blood spot. They're not taking blood out of you. It's actually a fingerprint prick. And you put these dry blood spots on a card and you send in that card and you can actually you you analyze the blood spot for drugs. OK, so this is new methodology. This was this came out of the Partnership for Clean Competitions Research, which is a group uh, that is the professional sports in the U.S., PGA Tour, NHL, NFL, uh, USADA, and uh, maybe there's one I'm missing. But uh, anyways, it's it's a group that funds research in the anti-doping realm, and, and it's out of that research that this blood spot method came. So I think we can expect more uh, of those collections to be incorporated into the urine testing. Um, athletes, 
I, I think athletes like this new approach because it's a little bit less invasive. You don't have to have somebody follow you into a stall and, and so forth to do all the urine testing. You don't have to wait potentially three hours as a dehydrated athlete after you compete yeah. to give a urine sample. Uh, you just prick your fingers and you're done. So um, they're working on the methods. They're working on expanding the methods now to be able to test for more and more things in these dried blood spots. So that's that's one area of research. Um, but it's it's we often know the things that need to be researched out there in the world, okay? But if you think about it, the speed that we work at as anti-doping scientists is we're always behind, right? right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not enough to just know that this drug is being used. You have to create a detection method for it. You have to validate that method. You've got to validate that method across different laboratories. You have to share that method around the world to different laboratories. And by the time you do all of that, they now have a new drug. So it's, uh, it's, it's a challenging game in that regard. But, um, you know, we have a talented worldwide group of anti-doping researchers that is constantly looking at that and constantly developing new tests. But, you know, we're behind because we have a lack of resources in anti-doping. Okay. I mean, my dad has been squawking for years, you know, years ago. He said, you know, give me $30 million today as a, you know, a foundation for a research budget. And I'll start solving some of these problems for you. Mm -hmm. But you give me a couple hundred thousand dollars here and a couple hundred thousand dollars there. The speed of advancement in anti-doping science is going to be much less. Okay. And you look at a group like the World Anti-Doping Agency, right? It's annual budgets like, I think, 32, 35 million dollars. Let's call it 35. Okay. And out of that, a portion of it goes towards research. All right. Let's let's say it's $10 million, which I don't think it is. Um, and, you know, some of the other large anti-doping organizations out there like USADA or, you know, the Partnership for Clean Competition spends maybe a couple million dollars a year on anti-doping research. Um, mind you, that's money coming from the NFL, a $9 billion a year sport that is spending less than 1% on research into anti-doping. So it doesn't yeah. seem to have yet been made a real priority from that standpoint. But it's it's tough, you know. Uh, so from the resource standpoint, uh, you know, we may have a worldwide budget of... $30 million wow. to do anti-doping research, to develop all these new tests and so forth. There's just so much out there for us to have to fight and deal with. Um, and when you look at, you know, I looked at it in an article I wrote once and I looked at the the annual salary of A-Rod plus the annual uh, amount that Lance Armstrong got in sponsorships. Okay. And, and those two things combined, not even the total money that either one of those athletes earned, but half 
you know, that total money vastly eclipsed the amount of money we have available in the world to do anti-doping research and detection. It vastly exceeds the amount we have to do anti-doping detection and testing around the world. Mm -hmm. It eclipses the entire anti-doping budget in two athletes. Okay, so if that doesn't illustrate the problem right there, you know, I don't I don't know what does. Yeah. Jeez. Presumably there's, I don't know, I, I'm only like an armchair chemist or someone who's interested in this, but presumably there's a finite number of compounds that you could possibly create that look like, let's say, testosterone or a stimulant or something like that. <laughs> Is there a possibility that, that there's an end to, you know, detection methods that you've, you've found a detection method for every compound? I mean, that's obviously an enormous challenge. I think defining every compound to begin with is the challenge. But I mean, take just a small example of that. Okay. You mentioned things that are similar to, to testosterone. I mean, that would basically be prohormones. Okay. Which are, you know, steroids that turn into things that are banned in sport in your body, but the actual thing you take may not be on a list. Uh, they're all banned. Um, but, you know, even within that prohormone, hormone realm, you know, when the pro-hormone revolution was coming, we found, you know, 30, 40, maybe 50 compounds out of that that people were using as active ingredients. But it there was a finite list. And it's, you know, it's funny, many of those came from the the Vita's Guide, uh, the famous Vita's Guide, Julius A. Vita's Guide to Anabolic and Androgenic Agents, which came mm. out in the late 60s. Okay. And it characterized all of the known anabolic steroids that were around at the time okay so vita's guide on anabolics has 666 steroids in it price okay yeah. just happens to be 666 I, i'm pretty sure that's the count right i'll we'll call it that anyways because it's a good fun number for us to discuss but there's 80 steroids on the world anti-doping agency list and you know we've had i think three or four iterations of the Anabolic Steroid Control Act in the U.S., which culminated with the designer Anabolic Steroid Control Act that Obama signed before he left office, uh, which finally put the nail in the coffin of pro-hormones because it, the legislation finally said, and related compounds that are not listed here are also prohibited. Um, that was the final nail in the pro-hormone coffin. Well, supposedly, because there are still plenty of pro-hormones that are out there sort of on the market, not nearly as many as there used to be. Yeah. Um, but that's because the industry's moved on to SARMs. And, you know, <laughs> there are SARM, SARM alternatives that are being even less regulated than uh, the, the anabolic steroids and the prohormones. It's It took three iterations of the Anabolic Steroid Control Act. Uh, we actually had a SARMs Control Act that was put forth as a bill in Congress in 2009 that now died because nothing goes through Congress, it seems, these days. Yeah. But unfortunately, that one died. And so, you know, it was the regulations that was going to say, OK, these really are illegal drugs and this is where they're categorized. And if you sell them, this is going to be a controlled substance violation.
decision, not just a slap on the wrist from the FDA in the, the dietary supplement realm. So um, that's the challenge. And it's, you know, I look at, at regulations and I look at, you know, how things are dealt with in the dietary supplement realm. OK, and it's uh, you look back to 2009, there was a raid on bodybuilding.com. It was the largest raid ever in the dietary supplement industry uh, and recalled. They they recalled something like 50 products from, you know, I can't remember how many brands, 30 brands or whatever else. The FDA raided, you know, seven facilities around the country and so forth and so on. At the end of the day, this resulted in a $7 million fine to bodybuilding.com who probably makes $7 million in a week. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, to some of the people who are actually formulating and making the ingredients that were being sold illegally as dietary supplements, oh, well, they were getting like a $250,000 fine. And, you know, if, if it was really extreme, you know, maybe you'd serve, you know, three months in jail or something like that. But, you know, you look at a product like Jack 3D mm-hmm. that became the most popular pre-workout in the world and was for sale from at least 400 different vendors on Amazon at its peak when I was looking at it. It too, DMAA, methylhexanamine, became the third most reported drug in the WADA system at the time. Um, And it was all coming from these dietary supplements and Jack 3D was sort of leading the way. Well, I mean, that company... USP Labs made upwards of $400 million off of Jack 3D in, you know, five-year period of time. Yeah. And so when you've got that amount of resources possible, if you cross that line to sell illegal products, and if the penalties for doing so are a $250,000 slap on the wrist, there's $400 million at stake. I think that's going to attract some, some attention. And And unfortunately, it attracts people to the industry who are willing to break the laws to make that money. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. I uh, have been, you know, kind of witness to both of these um, throughout time, not to mention the six oxo um, hormone with uh, Patrick Arnold and, and Ergo Farm. I used to where, where he famously had just gotten out of prison, of course, Patrick Arnold for THG, and he got out of prison and he said, "Oh, I'm not going to be dealing with anabolics or any of that. I'm I'm just going to be focusing on anti-aging products." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, oh, a new category, and you know, we're just going to focus on this illegal drug yeah. in a different category and try to sort of put a different, you know, a different spin on the issue. <laughs> so yeah. That didn't go very well either, though. No, no. I think he served more prison time and and uh, just a massive recall of all of those supplements and you know, but, you know themselves. Uh, unfortunately, Patrick became the poster child for creating these kinds of doping agents in the dietary supplement realm. There are countless people like Patrick and probably a lot more unscrupulous than Patrick that are out there doing this that we're just missing because we don't have these resources and because we can't even come up with a list of illegal dietary supplement ingredients that we all agree should not be in the industry. 
why do I have 70 if the FDA has 10? Okay. And so, you know, that's 60 other ingredients that appear to not be on the radar and are thus candidates to be exploited uh, and created as the new Jack 3D. So, yeah. I have a thought here about, you know, ethics and, and supplement creation. I, I think like at, at a surface level, we would want people to have access to supplements that allow them to increase their muscle mass faster. Like, you know, I think as the story goes, that's why steroids as a group were created in the first place where, you know, bedridden people who were atrophying their muscles. Like we want people to be able to, you know, uh, have better functioning brains or, you know, breathe better, things like that. Um, so we want the research to be done to improve, you know, human conditions. So the supplements people are able to buy are, are safe, but also effective. Um, how do you feel about kind of like research into drugs themselves? Should they go through the, the pharmaceutical pathway, uh, itself or, you know, should, should we be pursuing those things at all? Just keep them out of sports. It's an interesting question. I mean, what you see right now, even in the dietary supplement realm, is was what I call the farmification of the dietary supplement community. And by that, I mean that pharmaceutical companies have figured out that it's cheaper to bring a compound to market as a dietary supplement mm-hmm. because you have to do a lot less work to prove efficacy, a lot less work to prove safety and yet you can still bring this chemical component of a plant or whatever to market and all you have to do is is market it effectively right so i think you know you see that in the industry where pharmaceutical companies have been buying up dietary supplement companies left and right because they realize that and so what i think that is doing is sort of creating maybe a more pharmaceutical approach to formulating dietary supplements, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's more and more of a search for an active component of a plant uh, that would qualify as a legal dietary supplement um, and, and what that component can do functionally uh, from a standpoint of benefit. Um, and it's it it has a lot of bearing in and around the realm of drugs and sport. And it's I look at a category like myostatin inhibitors. Okay, um, it's a relatively new category that's been banned in sport. Uh, there aren't very many um, listed named drugs in the category. Okay, so what that does is create a race to uh, find substances that may and you know affect myostatin levels and thus affect your ability to build muscle okay if you inhibit myostatin you increase your ability to build muscle <laughs> so um, take something like epicatechins from green tea. Epicatechins are, are common in teas in general, particularly green tea. And epicatechins, probably the widest sold uh, myostatin inhibitor on the dietary supplement market today. There are countless products that literally say it's a myostatin inhibitor on the bottle as part of the claims. Um, and 
And so how does that work in the realm of banned substances in sport? Okay. Myostatin inhibitors in general are banned. They don't necessarily have to be something that's listed. The effect can be banned. And so when I'm sitting in my chair and I know that epicatechins have been researched and have been demonstrated to have effects on on myostatin levels, um, do I consider this tea extract to be a banned substance in sport? Um, and so you, you ask difficult questions like that. And the answer so far is no. Epicatechin is not treated as a banned substance in sport, but it could be interpreted as a banned substance in sport yeah. the same way those minor cannabinoids could be interpreted to be a banned substance in sport in the, the realm of cannabis. And so, you know, that that's there are numerous examples um, that go into that. Another example is is folostatin. Okay, folostatin actually got onto the list uh, as a banned substance in sport under the category of myostatin inhibitors a couple of years ago. Well, folostatin is present in eggs, in egg yolks. Okay, so. If you have an egg, you're probably having a small amount of folostatin that you're ingesting. So you're ingesting a banned substance in sport. You know, if you look at something like whey protein, okay, not very many people think about this, but whey protein has significant amounts of IGF-1 in it. Mm. And IGF-1 is a banned substance in sport. Nope, not a single anti-doping authority I've ever seen calls out and calls a question about whey protein. This is one of the most used dietary supplements in the world yeah. however they do have things on their site about colostrum right which is exactly the same issue colostrum naturally contains igf1 the same way whey protein does but the education materials focus on colostrum and make people paranoid about colostrum and say nothing about whey protein so it's you know to think that we don't ingest banned substances on a regular basis through those types of sources or things that could be considered or interpreted as banned is, is just foolish. Yeah. And so, you know, you're an athlete, okay, and you're you're shopping and you find a bottle of epicatechins on your shelf at a GNC and it says myostatin inhibitor on there. So are, are you now yourself personally feeling guilty because you're buying this tea extract product because it says the word myostatin and maybe you could be doping, maybe you're not. I mean, it's... Uh, those are the things we try to work out in our realm when we're certifying dietary supplements. And those are the difficult, just two examples of difficult questions that we have to ask when we're you know, applying the science and, uh, and trying to determine, you know, what is or is not acceptable for an athlete to use. Yeah. It reminds me of those three uh, criteria you were talking about with the, um, the WADA inclusion. You know, and, and something might meet one, but maybe not all of them or something. Um, or, or maybe, you know, one of the list committee members thinks it qualifies, but not all of them. Right. And it's it's, uh, you know, you look at at, at uh, you know, climate science. Right. And, you know, all of the arguments over global warming that are out there. Right. There's, 
you know, maybe the predominance of research falls on the side that global warming is an issue, but there are still scientific papers written that suggest it's not. And so depending on which paper you pick up and how many of uh, how many papers you pick up in one side or the other sort of shapes your perspective on that. And, you know, that's why there are still people today saying, you know, global warming doesn't exist. It's a weird phenomenon. And so I think, you know, you suffer that same issue when you're looking at the research in and around the realm of drugs banned in sport. Um, There's a a compound called higanamine that has become an interesting question recently, both from the standpoint of regulations and also uh, in WADA's realm. Higanamine uh, is present in a number of different plants. Uh, Higanamine is actually uh, present in a Japanese throat lozenge that uses the plant Nandina domestica to develop this lozenge. It became a popular throat lozenge in and around Japan. And so higanamine was added to the prohibited list a few years ago for its potential to be a beta-2 agonist, okay? There have been a couple studies out there that studied its potential as a beta-2 agonist to demonstrate that it had this potential, okay? And so not not a lot, but that's that's what was the basis for this substance being banned. And it's banned as a beta-2 agonist, not as a stimulant, which is really where the product shows up functionally in dietary supplements. It's a stimulant replacement ingredient that's replaced things like DMAA. So... From a regulation standpoint, the FDA put the higanamine on its dietary supplement ingredient advisory list until about a month ago, where they now took it off the ingredient advisory list. They're still there at the bottom, but it says actually these do qualify as legal dietary supplement ingredients, but there's not enough safety information and so forth and so on. So we don't think we would qualify it as a new dietary ingredient and we don't think it would pass muster for generally recognized as safe which is the other way people validate the legality of dietary supplement ingredients here in the US so now it's in the ultimate gray area where it's possibly legal but the FDA's already said that it's unlikely we're going to accept any safety or efficacy data so don't use it yeah. uh, so it's 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 weird how how things end up in that realm and, and what happened in the realm of drugs banned in sport well we get back to those thresholds and levels we talked about earlier people in Japan freaked out they said okay well now our athletes are going to test positive here in Japan from taking this throat lozenge so they had to do a whole study administering this lozenge to athletes to see what their levels would be and so yeah. forth and thankfully they aren't testing positive because of these loz- lozenges and they've had to set the threshold fairly high for higanamine because of it. But it's it's just an example of some of the accidental issues that are caused by prohibiting just one substance. So yeah. rather fascinating. Jeez. It's um it's way more complex than, than it looks and, and far more active than I think you know a lot of people realize. I had one more um, question for you before I let you go. Just kind of generally about fairness in sport and you know, this idea that, you know, no, we don't want anyone to take external substances. We want everyone to kind of come as you are. But we realize that there's dramatic variation in, like, the genetic population. Some people have 
you know, gene mutations or higher levels of, you know, myostatin or different levers, you know, generally shorter. And in powerlifting, it's, it's great if you're short. Um, <laughs> it's just, you don't have to move the barbell as far and it's typically great if you have longer arms, so you don't have to deadlift the bar off the floor as longer too. So all these different things can make someone a better lifter in one or another, um, parts of, of the sport, you know, in, in basketball and volleyball, it's the exact opposite. You want to be as tall as possible. So what do you make of fairness when it comes to genetic variance in, in the human population? I mean, I think there's certainly some issues that we need to pay attention to there. I mean, I remember the the questions surrounding Yao Ming, and it was, you know, discovered that he was coming from a region where these super tall people were coming from, and it was like they were sort of genetically creating these super tall individuals, sort of purposely. And it's it's. Uh, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing that, but I, I, I you know that kind of reality i think through gene manipulation to create certain traits i think is is something we're going to have to worry about for the longer term future we are just now scratching the surface of gene doping which everybody's been concerned about for years and the elementary forms of gene doping happen to come in and around the realms of folostatin uh, that i mentioned earlier and what they do is they hook folostatin to an inactivated virus in you inject that folostatin in inactive virus in your system, it replicates, thus replicating the folostatin, thus replicating your myostatin inhibitor in your body. And so that's how it works as a gene doping agent. And that's really why folostatin got prohibited in the first place. So that's what they're targeting there, not the folostatin that may be present in your eggs. Today, I don't know of a method that you can use to detect folostatin. They're just starting to detect those in, in gene doping. So uh, that's just an example of what people are doing. But we got a lot of work, I think, ahead of us to, to combat that. Uh, and it's been shown that athletes are willing to sacrifice their bodies and health and long-term futures to take drugs that will, you know, achieve athletic success. There was a famous IOC survey that said that, you know, if you could take a substance that was guaranteed to win you the gold medal, uh, but had a 50% chance of killing you in the next four years, would you take it? And the vast majority of athletes said, yes, we would. Um, frankly. So, but that's how much, you know, I used to work for USA weightlifting. Okay. I was a, okay. an intern there when I, when I got out of uh, college. So I, I worked there for a little while and it's, I got to understand it's, you know, the level of dedication that people put into a sport like weightlifting you know, people look at the track and field athletes and the swimmers and stuff that are always, you know, on NBC and so forth. And it's I was working with a, a sport that that was on TV a little bit less, a little bit less of a showpiece. And it's athletes that really are there because they love the sport. They love competition and so forth. And it's I'm thankful I did that because I really got to understand what it means to be an Olympic athlete and you know an athlete in general who's committed to a sport whether it be powerlifting or or weightlifting or anything else so um 
you know, seeing that and understanding that has made me even more passionate about defending it because I don't want those athletes to, you know, have their career ruined by, you know, supplement issues or something else. At least from my understanding, we have um, BSCG, there's informed choice, there's um, good manufacturing practices or GMP. I don't know why there's a C before that sometimes. Maybe you can enlighten me. Uh, NSF. What do all these mean? Why should we care? Sure. I mean, third-party certification in general, the industry that we're a part of, uh, has been growing uh, in the industry for the last, you know, 20 years. When we started doing this, it was really athlete-driven, and the athletes wanted this extra protection that simply didn't exist before. Before we started BSCG, there was no such thing uh, of pro proactive testing of dietary supplements for banned substances. So 17 years ago, 2004 is when when we started, it's about the same time NSF started their program. Um, when we started our program, we wanted to make sure it was accessible to any brand in the industry. You're a mom mm -hmm. and pop or the largest brand out there. We wanted you to have access to be able to test and verify that your products are free of banned substances in sport. And NSF had a very different sort of financial model initially, and it was like $300,000 to participate Jeez. in their program. And they had yeah. one client, EAS, for the first couple years until they adjusted their overall you know pricing scheme when we started it was a thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars per product to start and it was like five hundred dollars a test so very different you know in the scope and scale of cost so uh, as we've grown in this industry the the industry has matured and there have been some other players that have gotten involved uh, today as we sit the three main players in banned substance certification internationally are ourselves BSCG, uh, NSF Certified for Sport Program, and then LGC operates the Informed Sport, Informed Choice Programs, which are different. We can talk a little bit about the differences. Um, around the world, there's only two other groups that I'm aware of that do uh, something similar. There's Human and Sport Testing Australia, uh, HASTA, which is the home country brand there. Mm. Um, and there's uh, the Cologne List out of Germany which is German sports similar version. So those are the five programs around the world that uh, test products for banned substances. Labdoor has offered a program here in the U.S. a little bit more uh, recently. Uh, so there's really six in the world that do what we do today, which is really fun. I mean, it's it's amazing to be part of an industry that there are only six you know companies that are are doing it in the world. But uh, within that, we certainly have different approaches to what we do. Um, and if you take just the banned substance list, for example, um, you know we're covering almost 500 drugs today in our detection menu. Uh, NSFs. The menu today covers 280 substances, uh, and LGC's menu is covering about 250. The mm. Hosta and in, in Cologne lists uh, menus are probably a little bit smaller than that. 
So depending on who you use, you're testing for a different list of drugs. Uh, we're covering about 295 World Anti-Doping Agency prohibited substances. NSF covers 280. LGC covers 250. Um, we're the only group in the industry that has gone above and beyond drugs that are banned in sport. So we cover 203 drugs that are over-the-counter, illicit, prescription drugs. So we're covering pain painkillers, muscle relaxants, opioids, a whole host of other things. Um, You know, the FDA has been testing for tainted dietary supplements since about 2006. Um, And so we looked at what the FDA was finding as they were testing contaminated supplements, and we realized that uh, only 25% of the contaminated products they were finding were contaminated with drugs banned in sport. The other 75 were, or 75% were drugs that were not banned in sport. So we realized that our industry of, of certification was not covering a whole host of drugs that was important for consumer protection beyond just athlete protection. Uh, so years ago, we've, you know, it's been, I think, maybe seven years now since we added drugs in that vein. But we're, we're the only company out there that covers prescription over-the-counter and illicit drugs in addition to those banned in sport. So it really broadens the protection in categories like sexual enhancement, which are often uh, contaminated with PD-5 inhibitors, which are not banned in sport, or weight loss, where some of the weight loss drugs are not banned in sport. Um, So um, you get that extra protection with us that you don't with other programs. Um, beyond that, there are some functional differences in the approach that's taken. Uh, in the three international programs, we all have an initial certification approach where we review the manufacturing process and we review the overall quality control going into the product. Uh, in NSF's program, uh, it's a pyramid structure. So So to be an NSF certified for sport product, your manufacturing facility first has to be audited for CGMP, which stands for Current Good Manufacturing Practices. Thank you. And that's current GMPs uh, have been, they, they were guidance for dietary supplement manufacturing for many years, but they have since been made the law over the last 15 or so years. So now all dietary supplement manufacturers in the U.S. are have to follow GMP guidelines. Um, Still doesn't mean that they all do. And so third party certification groups like NSF or ours, uh, we offer a certified GMP program as well these days. So we go to a manufacturing facility. We audit the actual standard operating procedures that should be in place. We make sure all of the procedures are in place for all of the different sections of GMP. And then after we do the review process and any issues are addressed by the manufacturer, they get to hold a seal that says that their facility is GMP certified. So that's the first step in NSF's program. And it has to be NSF branded in their program. The second step is a content testing approach. So annually they test for label verification and contaminants. And then and only then 
and can you have your lots tested for banned substances to earn the certified for sports seal. Works a little different in LGC and BSCG environments where we review manufacturers for GMP as part of the process, but they don't have to be certified by us as a brand uh, in order to gain that banned substance certification. So the review is similar. It's just a different branded approach. Um, and we also review the full uh, quality control testing process for raw materials and finished products to ensure that proper testing is being done for contaminants and for label claims. Uh, we offer our certified quality program, which is a program that uh, actually conducts the testing for label verification and contaminant testing and puts seals on products that pass that test as well. So it's just a little bit of a different program in NSF. You have to have their brand to step up this pyramid uh, in LGC's approach. And in our approach, we do the same review process. We just don't have to have those same building blocks. Um, and there are some other important things to think about when it comes to banned substance certification. When, from an athlete standpoint, you always want to find a product that has been tested and certified by a third party like ourselves. Uh, and you want to check that the actual lot number that you have in hand has been tested by mm -hmm. one of these programs. Um, the frequency of testing is one of the biggest differences in the programs that are offered. And it's sometimes difficult to understand that. So the informed sport program out there tests every single finished production lot for banned substances. So does our program BSCG certified drug free. So in those two programs, every single lot's being tested. Informed choices program is a retail sampling approach. So mm -hmm. they make purchases monthly from retail channels and are randomly testing those particular lots, but not every single lot is tested under the informed choice program. So you've got to be a little bit careful if it's an informed choice program or a certified product that that particular lot has been tested. Um, in the NFF, NSF certified for sport program, unfortunately, is the most confusing when it comes to the frequency of testing. They have two different approaches that they use. They have one approach which allows the client to determine how often they test dietary supplements. Mm -hmm. So a client can choose to test uh, either an isolated batch here or there, or that client could elect to choose every single lot. Okay, so even in that one approach, you may have a subset of products tested, or you may have every lot. The other approach is to do uh, to test all batches however they interestingly have a, a way of redefining the word all okay and all ultimately means that they can choose which lots to certify either at NSF discretion 
or they test all of the actual lots mm. that are being produced. Okay. And both of those products, when they get listed in the database, come with the word all next to it. Okay. So a user, an athlete would look at a product that has the word all next to it and think that every lot is being tested when in fact that may not be the case in the NSF certified for sport environment. It's one of the most frustrating things I deal with when I, I look at programs next to each other um, because the same seal is on the bottle. Yeah. Whether you know one or two lots have been tested a year, whether 30% of finished lots have been tested that year, or whether all lots have been tested. And you know, take a, 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 a brand who on their own volition chooses to test every lot. So it's listed lot by lot. It doesn't have the word all next to it. If you compare that brand to a brand with the word all, the brand with the word all looks like they're doing a lot more extensive testing when in yeah. fact it may be the other brand who's the one that's decided to test all of the lots. And so when there's so much on the line at the end of the day for an athlete, playing games about you know the frequency of testing just doesn't make sense to us that's one of the reasons why we've maintained our commitment to certifying every lot yeah. because the goal is if you're an athlete you go and you pick up a product package on the shelf it has a seal you should be reasonably sure that that particular bottle in hand or a representative sample of it's been tested in my program that's the case you know in informed sport program that's the case in other programs that may not be the case Interesting. So athletes need to be real cautious about that. Uh, definitely look for products that are certified for banned substances, but a absolute necessary step is to take that bottle you have in hand, look at that lot number on the bottom, and make sure in, in the databases that all these companies provide that it's actually been tested. You guys seem to both test more and offer this less expensively to companies so that they can, you know, ensure their products are um, drug-free. How have you been able to do that compared to some of these other companies? Because I've talked with a few companies who, you know, want to test their products, but, you know, have gone to, let's say, Informed Choice was one of them, and the quote was absolutely asinine. You know, it's just, as a startup supplement company, it's impossible. Sure. And it's look, it's an investment to participate in any of these programs. Yeah. yeah. And it's you're investing in the quality of your brand. You're also investing in the marketing that the seals that we provide offer. Um, and it's, you know, the awareness of these seals and what they mean to end consumers is is growing. You're seeing that uh, appear in retail channels where retail channels are demanding third party certification now as well. And testing for banned substances and so forth. So it's, it's uh, you know, what we do is sort of filling the gap between the regulatory structure that's out there and, and we are providing a mechanism of ensuring that, that the quality control that should be taking place is actually taking place um, and that things that shouldn't be in your product are not getting there. Um, and it's, it's that extra confidence that we provide above and beyond what the industry does. You know, people people have 
now are knowing that, you know, it's not just the cheapest dietary supplement that's going to be the best for me. Yeah. yeah, it's cheaper supplements are likely to have cheaper ingredients to have less put into the formula development. And certainly in cheaper supplements, you tend to have less of a focus on quality control and a foundation in it. And so people are starting to understand that consumers are starting to understand that. And they're starting, frankly, to demand more and more transparency out of their brands. Uh, and one of the ways brands can be transparent is through third party certification. Yeah. Uh, so we're really excited that that's taking shape. I mean, I looked at a survey the other day where uh, it said that a significant percentage of the respondents were willing to pay more for a product that they felt was more transparent. Yeah. And, you know, consumers at the end of the day, it's I think have figured out that this is an industry where not all products are proven and not all products do what they say. And, you know, especially during COVID, I think, um, you know, whereas consumers previously may have relied a lot more on advice from, you know, people at retail channels or something like that. You know, during these last couple of years, we we have tended to take a more, you know, concentrated approach to our own health. Yes. And to the, the products and stuff that we take and what goes into those. We've had more time at home to do research into those types of products. And I think that's showing. Um, in the decisions and the decision-making process that consumers are going through. And thankfully, they're looking for transparency and looking for, you know, that quality control and a foundation in the quality control that uh, companies like Buff Chicks bring to the table. So, um it's exciting to see that. And it's exciting to see those brands that do go that extra mile becoming uh, leaders and becoming, you know, a showcase in the industry. You know, people are, are looking at those brands and saying, OK, well, these brands are committed to quality control. They're, you know, they're doing it right. We want to do the same thing. And it's it's starting to filter through the industry, which is great. Yeah, that way. And even just market pressure, you know, if enough people demand um, certification, then, you know, I, I hope that more companies kind of come on board. It was, right. I mean, even, even in the retail approach, you know, Amazon has started to require more paperwork to mm. be sent in when you're selling dietary supplements on the platform. So now if you're going to sell a dietary supplement on Amazon, you have to send C of A's in to demonstrate that you've tested it for label claims and so forth. Or they also are allowing third party certifications like BSCGs or NSFs or LGCs as an alternate to that because we, they know that we're including that in the process. So, um, you know, brands that have the foresight to be certified are having a much easier process when it comes to uh, some of these new retailer driven testing requirements. Um, and, you know, they're finding that the money that they invested to really uh, focus on quality control, compliance and band up is, is money well spent. Um, so it's great. You know, even Amazon has now started testing for drugs oh, wow. uh, in sexual enhancement products and in weight loss products. And, 
you know, in our program, we're covering those compounds already in our testing menu. So the, the utility of being certified is getting broader and broader every day. Not to mention that, I mean, if you're in a sport environment today, the vast majority of anti-doping people and or sport people are aware of supplement risks and are telling their athletes, you know, look for certified products if you want to use diet supplements. So that's driving a lot more demand from brands and from athletes and, and so forth as well, which is nice. There's, um, there's kind of another reason for, you know, getting some type of test. So on the one hand, you can test to see if there's an absence of substances, but you also want to make sure that, you know, if the supplement label says this has five grams of creatine, that it actually has five grams of creatine in it. Because um, I've heard of horror stories of people taking stuff that has, you know, a tenth of the active ingredient that they thought it was going to have. Does BSCG also do that, or, or what's the process? That's of what that? I mentioned was part of our certified quality program. So yes, that's in, incorporated in that, uh, and it's incorporated in our initial review process for certified drug free. So we we review the raw material testing process. We review C of A's for the raw materials. Same thing for finished products, all to make sure that the right ingredients uh, are making it into that product in the right amounts so very cool well I hope I didn't miss anything uh, as far as other topics we wanted to cover before we uh, wrap up here well, there's endless topics in this realm, as you know, Bryce, but <laughs> I think uh, what we covered today was certainly good, and I've, I've enjoyed the opportunity and uh, certainly look forward to communicating with your group of athletes on what's right and wrong in this realm. And, you know, more than anything, we're a resource, um, you know, so if there's any questions, if you your listeners have anything that they, you know, want support with, have questions that are complex in this arena, they're certainly welcome to reach out to us directly, either through email at info at bscg.org. Our website, bscg.org, has all of our databases on there. Uh, and of course, you can call us directly if you have questions as well. So uh, we're, we're here to help uh, folks navigate this complex realm. So There are an unbelievable amount of questions. So I'm, I'm sure I'll send some people uh, your way and hopefully they'll get more enlightened uh, as a result. Oliver, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Bryce. Nice chatting with you. Take care. Good chat with you. Thanks for doing what you do. And for being a clean athlete more than anything. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Fun rest. All right. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the episode. We hope you found something insightful or a new way to look at something you already know. It helps us get discovered if you leave a rating and review of the podcast. Subscribe if you enjoyed what you heard recommend the podcast to other lifters you know. And of course, if you need coaching, you can reach out to us at thestrengthathlete.com. See you next time.